So the the sense that I've had from talking to people in the groups today and this afternoon and just generally is that there's been quite a lot to to absorb and that um, possibly hearts and minds are feeling fairly full at this point in the retreat. And so um, I want to just kind of try to bring a bit of lightness of touch to this evening's talk and hopefully not not talk for too long um, and this, we can treat this as a kind of uh, rest and digest uh, kind of uh, pulling I, what, my, what I'd like to do is just pull together in a way the, the sort of conceptual framework a little bit around these, these qualities that we've been practicing with um, and hopefully do it with a lightness of touch We've been uh, practicing this abiding, finding a, a spacious and embodied way of <coughs> taking our seat at the centre of our experience, and really encourage you to just to do that now as, as you listen. So uh, Ajahn Chah used to say. Uh, you should use your heart to listen to teachings, not your ears. So I suggest that you, you take your seat, rest in your heart space, and just let yourself uh, receive the words um, without worrying too much about holding on to things. So we've been practicing also with this using this chant about radiating these qualities in the four directions and actually this is really the only instructor, instruction that the Buddha gave in the, in the earliest teaching, in the original texts about how to practice this meditation so many of us have the sense of doing metta practice is this practice with uh, having certain phrases that we direct to ourselves and to a, a friend and a benefactor and a neutral person and a difficult person, and that is meta practice. And I hope what we've done is sort of see the idea that it can be a lot more than that. So it's any practice that we're doing that's cultivating this quality of friendliness in the heart is meta practice. And so we've offered maybe a few different uh, images and means of evoking this and the other qualities and really to just for each of you to pick up the ones that are useful for you and just leave the rest. So the foundation of all of these four qualities is the quality of, of metta or friendliness and as I said this morning, there's actually the, the, the root or the seed of metta is a sense of non-contending with our experience, a willingness to embrace life and ourselves in this moment, just as we are. And we can't remind ourselves of this too often because there's so many subtle ways in which we kind of try to improve ourselves or we think that our well-being is something to be attained out there when X, Y, and Z conditions have come into place and we've, we've done this, that, or the other. So the seed of matter is willingness to embrace things as they are. 
And metta or friendliness is the opposite, the antidote to aversion and ill will. It's a quality of friendliness that's different from uh, a kind of sticky attachment. It's, it's unconditional. And it's interesting to me as we were doing the standing with the different points of the compass, I was kind of very aware as I was facing a particular direction of what the quality was behind me. And it's interesting to me that the compass point opposite meta, if we take the, the, mid, the heat of the midday sun, or the, facing, the south-facing sun, uh, as, the, as the symbol for metta, and then the coolness of the north of equanimity is behind us. And it's this, this coolness, this balance of equanimity that stops our, um, our goodwill, our friendliness from um, becoming a kind of clingy attachment. And so it's interesting to me that to reflect that metta is, you know, we use these phrases like, may you be well, but so often when we, we wish somebody well, there's a kind of subtle agenda there, may you be well so that I can be happy too, so that I don't have to suffer from your irritability, or so that I don't have to worry about you. That's not real matter. That's kind of, you know, uh, what we might call a near enemy of matter. So matter says you can be as grumpy as you like, and I will love you anyway. And as we turn it to ourselves, we can be as imperfect as we, as we are in this moment. And we can offer ourselves this unconditional friendliness anyway. So again, I like the, the image of the, the midday sun or the sun that shines equally on all beings. It doesn't choose that it's gonna, I'm going to shine on you or I'm going to shine on this quality that I like and not on the other ones. So the phrase that we've been using for metta is the sense, my friend, I wish you well. And we don't discriminate between friends. We start inviting the possibility that everybody is a potential friend. Even every quality within us is a potential friend. Something to be uh, loved and accepted as it is. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, you know, strive to, um, to let go of certain qualities that are, that are not helpful, but it's not, uh, when we do this with a sense of friendliness, it generally works out better. It's said that there are multiple benefits of practicing metta, um, that one is loved by all beings, human and non-human, that you would sleep easily and dream no evil dreams, and that we look beautiful. And this is true, isn't it? You know, a person who is friendly and kind, they, they radiate a certain kind of beauty. And however beautiful a person might be in a conventional sense you know, if they ha don't have kindness to them they're, they're, not, they're not really beautiful 
It's also said that it protects us from harm. It's a protective quality, protects the heart. So if we, the Buddha said, if we appreciate the benefits of, of metta, a wise person would actually take more care of the presence and absence of goodwill in their heart than a young person who was, or a person, a beautiful person who was very, very concerned with their appearance and uh, spent a lot of time looking in the mirror for their wrinkles and spots and grey hairs. You'd spend as much time or as much effort, more effort, looking into your heart to just see, well, what's the condition of my heart right now? So what blocks metta, this opposite uh, energy or quality of aversion? And I've been having fun over, I've been in Gaia House for a week or so now, and I've been having fun just watching uh, as I've been practicing, practicing trying to radiate metta, watching the res- my response to the different birds around me, and I noticed that it's much easier to feel metta for the ones that make pleasant sounds, and it's harder to me- to feel metta <laughs> radiating towards the crows for me personally, and just seeing how much our you know our availability for for metta is triggered by just this kind of reactive response to unpleasant feeling and so that's you know maybe the birds are less less complex to work with than so-called difficult people so been enjoying working with that sense of can I stretch this sense of friendliness from not just the birds who make sounds I like but the bird towards the birds who make sounds that I don't like I was sharing this with a friend who lives near here as well, and I say oh, it's so much easier to practice metta for the bunny rabbits. <laughs> she has she has a garden and a and a kind of greenhouse that she's constantly having to protect from the rabbits and squirrels, and she's saying I don't feel that for them at all. <laughs> and it just shows you how our perceptions of you know what what's what's. Uh, pleasant for us, what's unpleasant for us, what's easy to generate matter for, to feel that sense of friendliness for, what isn't, is just so conditioned by the stories that we tell ourselves about things and by people. And these stories, you know, to remember that they're just stories, they're products of conditions. So my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, used to say that one of the greatest harms that we can do to one another is to fix other people with our stories. To not, so then we're not really seeing them, we're not meeting them in the moment, we just see them through the lens of the ideas that we've formed about them based on our past experience. And conversely, he said that the greatest gift you can give to other people, and I remember distinctly him saying this about parents, which kind of touched me very much at that time, the greatest gift that we can give our parents is not to fix them with our stories about them. So this is one of the ways that we can um, prize away some of the obstacles to that free flow of goodwill in the heart, is to just recognise the stories that we have in our mind as just stories and not the whole truth of the way things are. 
That was noticing this morning as we practiced metta for the so-called neutral person that uh, another obstacle to the flow of metta is our just simple lack of it, lack of attention, yeah. the indifference that comes from you know not really not really registering someone in awareness. So the more awake and attentive we become. The more that awake and attentive the heart is, then the more meta friendliness, goodwill gets naturally sparked off. So meta is the foundational quality. The sense of um, comes from the, the related to the Sanskrit word for for friend, and there's a. There's a I don't know if it's a literally a true etymology, but there's a kind of um, uh, a relationship with the word for, for plumpness of heart. So I think Catherine mentioned on the first night she talked about having a plump and a juicy heart. So when the heart is plump and juicy and it touches the different experiences of life, it has different responses. So when the, the, the heart of goodwill touches an experience of suffering, this is when the quality of compassion arises. And again, we mentioned last night about how the, there are uh, two words actually in Pali for, the, for uh, compassion, and one of them is this word avukampa, which means to tremble along with something. In the way that the strings of one violin will start resonating with another violin when it's played. This is what our hearts naturally do. And an image I like is uh, like, this is like the emergence of a rainbow. So when the sunshine of metta touches the uh, rain of sorrow, the rainbow of compassion appears. And we've also said how compassion is balanced by equanimity. And this uh, beautiful image of Kuan Yin behind me, who listens to the sounds of the world at ease in her cool and powerful pose, his, her, or their cool and powerful pose. Powerful pose. There's another way that Kuan Yin is often portrayed is with 1,000 hands and 1,000 eyes. So you see these pictures in the Tibetan tradition of this uh, deity with arms extending all around and in the palm of each hand is an eye. And sometimes each hand also holds a different implement to, to enable all sorts of different responses to conditions. And what this tells us is that there's no pain that's too great to be touched by the, the uh, essence, the energy of compassion, but also that there's no suffering that's too trivial to be worthy of care and compassion. And the movement of compassion in the heart is this sense of being touched by suffering and wishing to help. And this is very different from wishing to fix Again, fixing has that sense of uh, I have I have to have this work out a certain way in order for me to be all right. 
but an, a useful way of seeing compassion is like the way that we respond to a child with flu. You know? We do everything we can to soothe and ease the experience of the child with flu and give them what they need, but we know that the flu will come and go in its own time. We can't force the pace and we can't actually force the outcome, which is why... Uh, Compassion, in order to function properly, needs to be balanced by this quality of equanimity. I was really enjoying the sound of the rain earlier this morning and yesterday evening. And because Catherine was talking about mercy last night, those lines uh, from Shakespeare came to my mind, the quality of mercy is not strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. And somebody brought a really beautiful reflection to one of the groups today about the experience of working in the garden and struggling to dig things up in the hard soil the first day of doing this. And then the rain fell and suddenly the soil was softened and the weeds became suddenly easy to pull out. And what a beautiful um, image for this work that we're doing of tending, weeding and cultivating the heart. When the rainfall of kindness and compassion uh, lands on our experience, it softens softens it up and it becomes easier to tend to that which needs tending to. So the opposite to the quality of compassion is cruelty or indifference to others' suffering. This is often what we experience. I mean, the cruelty is... There's, maybe a a complete lack of empathy or sometimes our own pain or our own hurt gets entangled in an experience and we we actually have this um, (coughs) punitive sense of of enjoying somebody else's suffering. The the forgiveness practice that we did this afternoon is a really um, beautiful way to address this. But we can also just be indifferent and considerate of others' suffering. And this is also an absence of compassion. So I think sometimes we choose not to look in certain directions because we don't want to see. And this is maybe because we, we, we have an instinctive guarding against the experience of overwhelm, which is one of the things that happens when compassion kind of goes off or is there's, there's a, a great sensitivity but that's not actually really um, the, the kind of genuine compassion that's balanced by equanimity. Or another near enemy for compassion is uh, pity, where we kind of look on someone's suffering but with a sense of looking down, well, it, it's your suffering, it's not my suffering, and I'm, you know, thank goodness it's not right, not me, there but for, there but for fortune, you know, go you. 
And this is, again, this is not compassion. So we use the image of the, the setting sun for compassion. And I like this because there's a sense of deepening quiet about the setting sun. And that take, also takes us towards this quality of equanimity. And there's a poignancy to it, isn't there, to the uh, experience of the ending of things, of, of loss and of the disappearance of the day. So somebody mentioned feeling a surge of sadness when facing in that westerly direction. This, and to me, there, there is a poignancy to... Uh, contemplating to being touched by suffering but we can we can feel sadness the heart can resonate but again we don't have to be overwhelmed by it so loss is is the stuff of life and we can squash down our feelings around it or we can learn to um, sustain a sense of well-being and care in the midst of them and it's interesting just to contemplate how the experience of compassion arises when we're touched by suffering in ourself or in another. But is the actual feeling of compassion when you experience it, is that suffering? Or is there a kind of sweet taste to it? I'll just let you explore that for yourself. So we can squash down suffering or we can learn to open the doors of our heart. And opening the doors of our heart is something to be done slowly. So there's a, an image that they use in mindful self-compassion training of uh, what's called backdraft, which is the word from firefighting for what happens if you suddenly open a door on a fire and let in the oxygen it's just the fire will go whoosh. and it can be the same with our, our suffering and our sorrow when we start to turn uh, the energy of kindness towards it it can feel really overwhelming so this is something to do very gradually, that we open, open the door gradually, or we allow things to open the heart to open and close. We don't have to have a heart that only knows how to open, we can also know how to let it breathe in and breathe out. But what we don't want is for it to get stuck tight closed. And there's a certain wisdom to that, to, to, you know, knowing when enough is enough. So also in this, in this image of digging up the weeds in the garden, the territory, the soil gets softer under the rain, but still there are some weeds that it's just, they're too deep to be dug out right now. So there's a certain wisdom to say, okay, I'm going to come back to you when I've got better tools or when the conditions are more propitious for digging you out and for now I'll just leave you be so the phrase that we've been using for compassion is I care 
I care for your pain, I care for your suffering. And all these, obviously all these qualities have many phrases that we can use, but this is our kind of way of keeping it simple. So the opposite point of the compass of suffering is joy, of, of compassion was joy. We were facing to the west to the setting sun for compassion and to the east or the rising sun for joy. Uh, sunrise brings a sense of energy and optimism about the day. And we've been using this idea of lightness of touch. And I was reflecting again with standing to the, with the front to one direction and the back to the other direction that sunrise and sunset give rise to one another. You can't have a rising sun without a setting sun. And you don't have... Similarly, you never have a setting sun without a rising sun. Well, you might do if it didn't rise tomorrow, but <laughs> right as it's setting right now, for somebody, it's rising for somebody else, isn't it? So it's always rising and setting at the same moment, on, at some point on the earth. So these two things condition one another. And so it's a mistake to think, as we often do when we're in it, that... <coughs> Uh, joy cannot be found or is not available in the midst of our sorrows and our difficulties. And this is really, really important to, to remember. The way that we practice with joy is not to try to pump it out. I, mean, I should be joyful. With all of these, you know, they're not superego impositions. But it's about remaining available for the experience of joy to arise, to make space for joy. And joy doesn't have to be a, a full-blown firework experience. It can be something quite subtle. So letting ourselves, letting our hearts be nourished by simple sparks of joy. And for example, you know, the things that we, that we feel in nature, that we find in nature... Probably you've had experiences being here and many times of actually, you know, you might be holding something quite sorrowful in the heart and then you have a moment of just being in nature and something really touches you. And these two things can happen uh, in, the same, in the same time. I think one of, the, one of the delusions we fall into is the sense of either that I don't deserve to experience my moments of joy because I haven't yet sorted myself out or I have these problems that I should be fixing or that the belief that, well, I can't, somehow I can't, because, because I'm holding this difficulty, I can't therefore experience joy. We sort of feel like, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, be, shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be having the experience of joy. I've noticed that sometimes in my own meditation. You know, I'll be sitting and there's this kind of joy that arises when the heart becomes peaceful and I'll start kind of resting into that and the meditation kind of going quite well in that sense. And then suddenly a thought will come in, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you don't, you can't just sit here and 
be peaceful and enjoy yourself because there are all these things that need doing. Even though I've clearly decided that, you know, I can spare this time to do a meditation practice, but it's so insidious, the sense of, oh, but you should be, you can't, you can't rest until everything is done. But everything is never done. So there's, there's actually a, um, a slogan from a, a Tibetan um, training in a manual for the Bodhisattva, a compendium on how to practice perfecting the qualities of wisdom and compassion. The, the, this intention of lib- practicing for the liberation of all beings, and one of the training principles in this in this compendium is always maintain a joyful heart. One of my friends was kind of taking that as her practice over the last months. I thought, wow, that's really that's really a big ask. That's a that's a challenging thing to do. But it's also quite profound to always remember, even in the midst of difficulty, the possibility of making room for joy. To me, that's a really useful way of seeing it, not that sense that I should always be joyful and if sorrow is arising, then something is wrong. But just to, to not forget the possibility of uh, making room for joy. So they're qualities like appreciation and contentment and gratitude that are natural gateways into the experience of joy. And the teaching around gratitude that I love is come, comes from um, Brother David Steindl Rast, who some of you might know, who's a Benedictine monk, he's in his 90s now. And he teaches gratefulness, and he says that every moment presents us with an opportunity and we can be grateful for that, the gift of that opportunity and most of the opportunities that we're given are just simply an opportunity to enjoy something sometimes the content of the moment is really not uh, enjoyable in that way but he says even in those moments we're given an opportunity to respond I think that's a really beautiful um, reflection on the possibility of gratefulness and how gratefulness is a is a route into joy. And in the context of the, these four qualities, the Brahma Viharas that we we've been speaking on, mudita or joy is actually uh, it's actually the quality of sympathetic or appreciative joy, the capacity to take delight not only in our own happiness but in that of others. But it's based on an ability to really um, to an ability to really uh, experience and be attuned to the quality of joy generally. So delighting in the happiness of others, even when we're, we may be not tasting it ourselves, is a kind of advanced, uh, a more advanced practice, but it comes through really being nourished already in our own heart and also um, you know, this diminishing sense of separation from, between us and others. So the Dalai Lama says that, that the fact that they're 
7 billion people on the planet provides us with 7 billion opportunities to be happy. If we can say to one another, I rejoice in your happiness, or I rejoice in your moments of happiness, because again, you know, we're not all experiencing the conditions for happiness in every moment, but can we delight in the moments of happiness that arise from one another? Or I rejoice or I delight in your being. Just delighting in somebody's very existence, their potential. And this kind, of, this kind of ability to rejoice is an antidote to the sense of insufficiency and lack. We often um, have, a, you know, we have a negativity bias that's programmed into the brain and our whole culture conspires to keep us in this state of perpetual wanting something else to satisfy us. And you know, the cultivation of joy or mudita is a is a powerful um, medicine for this kind of um, societal conditioning. And it's also an antidote to envy. So we do tend to um, fall into the deluded state of thinking that there's not enough happiness to go round. And just to remember that this is an immeasurable quality. The fact that you're happy in no way diminishes the possibilities for happy happiness in myself. Yeah. As if we can delight in one another's happiness, we have seven billion opportunities for it. Okay, so I wasn't going to talk too long, so I was going to speak a little bit about equanimity, which is the, the fourth of the qualities. So somebody was saying, can you explain a bit more what equanimity is? And so the English word equanimity implies a mind that's even and balanced. And the Pali word upeka, which is on the bottom of the chanting sheets for equanimity, means to look over so it's a sense of being able to see something in perspective with a long view. There was a video that I found on, uh, I think it was a video trending on the BBC website last week, which some of you might have seen about a, uh, a clutch, I think, I don't know what a group of ducklings is called, that had been taken in and befriended by a male Labrador. So the mother of this du- these ducklings had disappeared and they were found wandering around uh, kind of in distress on this, on this estate somewhere in Essex and the, the estate keepers kind of brought them in, indoors to a safe place to look after them and then the, the house Labrador called Fred found the ducklings and uh, started taking care of them and they now sort of sleep in, in Fred's paws and ride around on his back and so on. It's a really great video to have a look at. So I was thinking about how, you know, this is an interesting situation to look at from the perspective of all of these qualities. So uh, the sense of compassion that arose in the hearts of the of the people on the estate when they saw these distressed ducklings who'd lost their mother. 
And then this quality that I, I imagine arose in the heart of Fred the Labrador as he beheld these little ducklings of this wanting to befriend and protect. And then the experience that I had on hearing this story of, of Mudita, of delighting in the, in the happiness and good fortune of the ducklings and of Fred and of the, the staff who had been witnessing all this. And then if we kind of pan out with our lens, with the lens, we come back and we look at the whole story, you know, there's a sense of sadness for goodness knows what happened to the mother, but, you know, there was probably a fox or some, some, someone who was very happy <laughs> that evening, but there's this uh, sad story about the ducklings. And then there's this, you know, again, something else manifests, the uprising of a cause for joy. And... And so uh, equanimity would look at this whole whole thing and see, be touched by the joy, be touched by the sorrow, but none of it becomes a problem because this is just the way that nature is. <coughs> one, thing, uh, one thing will arise and another thing will cease. So equanimity sees the changing vicissitudes of fortune but isn't shaken by them. It knows that everything exists depending on, on conditions and will uh, disappear, disappear um, subject to conditions. All, all this experience is just arising and passing dependent on, on these conditions. So equanimity is the ability to stay even-minded in the midst of this. Christina Feldman talks about the capacity to be equally near all things. And it balances, it balances the other qualities of metta. So metta becomes, it, it doesn't become a kind of sticky attachment. It balances compassion because uh, it sees the bigger picture. It, sees the, it accepts the limits of our ability to help and therefore we're not, um, we're not deterred from stepping forward to do what we can. And it balances joy, uh, that joy doesn't get carried away with a sense of kind of um, intoxication. And the Buddha said that when we cultivate compassion, it roots out, uh, cultivate equanimity, it roots out our tendency to aversion. And I thought that was interesting because I thought oh, that, that the opposite of aversion is goodwill. But actually it's interesting to, to reflect how developing equanimity, it means that there's no circumstance towards which we need to, um, need to uh, experience aversion. And so this is different, equ- equanimity is different from the quality of indifference. And in order for it not to tip into indifference, it needs to be warmed up by the quality of metta. So once again, as we face the north, our backs are being warmed by the sun to the south. And what blocks equanimity is our lack of clear seeing of conditions and the attachments that's born of that. And this is something that we can't let go of all at once. So... In fact, we, we find it very difficult to let go of anything 
And what really happens is that wisdom lets go when the mind gradually sees the way that uh, it's misinterpreted something or the way that it creates its own suffering. So this is like peeling off the layers of an onion. We slowly, slowly, as we see things more clearly, find that the mind starts to let go. So our reflection around equanimity was, I let you be intact. I allow you your intactness. So we recognize the limits of our ability to influence conditions. And we respectfully allow nature to take its course. And sometimes, you know, wise reflection is a really helpful support for our equanimity. So I thought I'd just share a few uh, other phrases that might uh, be a support for equanimity. So these are some other possible um, phrases for the cultivation of upeka or equanimity. May I deeply accept this moment as it is. May I embrace change with stillness and calm. I care for you deeply, but sadly I can't protect you from distress. You are the parent of the choices you make and their outcomes, and I can't make those choices for you. May I be equally near to all things. May I rest in care and stillness in the midst of sorrow. So again, just you know, remembering that equanimity is not indifference. It has to be warmed by the quality of metta or of friendliness. So these qualities, you know, we're offering them, encouraging them as a place to make a home for the heart, a resting place for the heart. So this vihara is a place where we we come to rest. This word vihara in the in the um, Buddhist monasteries, of vihara is the dormitory, actually. So it's uh, where you go and take your rest and recharge. And we're offering them as a source of inspiration, a place to um, find guidance, inspiration, something in which to put trust, as something to remember, to recollect, as something to recognize, something to cultivate. Because when the garden is filled with flowers and vegetables, there's less room for the weeds to flourish. There's less nutriment left over for the weeds. And when the heart is nourished by these qualities, it expands. And I mean the heart in its broadest sense of the heart-mind, the seat of intelligence, of feeling and awareness. 
So all these things are nourished by these qualities. So in the traditional teachings, there's a beautiful image of a crystal of salt. If we take a crystal of salt and we dissolve it into a teacup of water, the water becomes undrinkably salty. If we take the same crystal of salt and we threw it into the river Ganges, the salt would barely be noticed. And it's the same with the obstructions in our heart. If we develop these qualities in the heart, then it's like dropping, the obstructions become like crystals of salt dropped into a large body of fresh water. When we don't cultivate them, it's like the difficulties being dropped into a teacup. Like we're much more overwhelmed by the difficult experiences of our life. And in a way, we don't have to fabricate these qualities, although we're teaching, we're teaching them as cultivations, but there is a sense in which they're already there. It's like we, as, we, as we prize away the obstacles of lack of attention, of lack of clear seeing, of obstructive thoughts and habits, then it's like we're drawing back a curtain to reveal the radiance that's naturally there in the pure mind underneath. So really I think, you know, this is a kind of paradox here, but what we're doing is we're learning to attune to a certain frequency. Remembering to tune to the frequency of kindness, of compassion, of joy and of equanimity. And when we do that, then we find ourselves able to embrace the life that's already here. So we don't need to become someone different, we don't need to become someone better, we don't need to procrastinate our happiness and well-being to that magical moment in the future when all our problems and all the problems that we're touched by in the world have been ironed out. We can embrace the life that's here and from there we can move to do whatever it is that we're moved to do.
Thank you for your kind attention and we'll have some time for walking now and just to see the possibility that you could use this next walking period for uh, what I simply what's called a sense and savour walk so just rather than being trying too hard to be mindful or to use it for walking meditation unless you feel a real interest and uh, wish to do that is just to allow yourself to spend some time outside and just to really let yourself gravitate to whatever uh, draws you and delights you and really soak that up so if you you know you see see something that pulls your attention you can go and explore it and really savor and appreciate anything that uh, touches you in the garden or in your teacup or whatever and then um, let yourself be nourished and we'll come back together in 